The story behind the creation of the Spider-Man Broadway musical Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark is more compelling than the musical itself. It is a story about a group of creatives coming together and making some of the strangest decisions I have ever seen put into a Broadway show. It was a group of people who said that they would make a Spider-Man musical, but really didn't want to make a Spider-Man musical. Through things completely out of their control and many more things completely in their control, this musical quickly spiraled and became a controversy magnet that would go on to ruin friendships, people's mental health, and people's bones. Today, I will be weaving the tale of how hubris, insecurity, and just plain bad luck led Spider-Man turn off the dark to become the most controversial musical in Broadway history. Welcome to Strange Ride, where I tell the smartest man I know the weirdest things I know. My name is Savannah Verrett, and I will be your guide today, but you're not the only ones going on this ride. I have Will Alderson here with me, an old friend of the podcast. Hello. Great to be here. Yes, we are so happy to have you, Will. And then, of course, we have the smartest man I know, Rob C. Thompson of Occult Confessions fame. This musical ruined my bones. Yeah, <laughs> it ruined a lot of bones. So <laughs> wait till you hear about it. And I love that. Okay, I mean, I don't love the ruining of bones, but I love the the phrase is hilarious. <laughs> yes. Well, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself? I know because our uh, podcast universe hasn't really heard from you before. I don't yeah. think. No, I don't. I don't think so. Uh, longtime listener, first time caller. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my name is Will Alderson. Uh, I'm a New York-based comedian and writer uh, who also knows a lot about theater. I work on Broadway, at, uh, doing like working in the box office at some shows. I've done like COVID safety on some shows, so I've been backstage at a bunch of different ones, like Phantom of the Opera, the Music Man revival with Hugh Jackman which Hugh Jackman gave me COVID, surprisingly. Oh, yeah. congratulations. I know. <laughs> no, no, he did not sign. He did give me a uh, a lottery scratch-off one. Like, you know, he would do that every Sunday, just, you know, as a thank you to everyone that worked on the show with him. He'd be like, yeah, have a lottery scratch-off. Hope you win. We're like, thanks, Hugh Jackman. Jackman. encourages gambling. <laughs> exactly. That's pretty amazing. I mean, it's okay to gamble if somebody else is paying for it, I guess. Yeah. So. It's a nice gesture, I think. Yeah. Yeah, he's a very That's nice, nice guy. Cool. Yeah. Well, yeah, Will is our is the podcast at least resident Broadway expert because he, I mean, I know a ton about Broadway, but he knows like ton times more than I do. So. How many shows have you seen, Will? I think like uh about 130 on broadway wow. Ooh, oh my god yeah that's amazing yeah yeah well, but well, you, you you're not independently wealthy you you got no, no. tricks and ways to getting in yeah the, yeah the yeah cheap you tickets can get and... cheap tickets or sometimes i mean working on broadway sometimes you know they're just like hey you want to stay and watch the show when you're done working and you're just like yeah and so then you get to stay and like i got to watch pamela anderson in chicago which was quite a performance to wow. was she roxy hart she was roxy hart hot damn can she sing a little bit all right you know she, you could tell that that she was taught how to she sing could muscle through it all right yeah <laughs> Roxy Hart doesn't take some crazy vocals, so yeah, <laughs> it's that, okay. Yeah. Oh, well, uh, did you ever, you never saw Spider-Man, though, right? We were too young for no, that? No, no. Well, I wanted to, but my mom, like, you know, my parents were just like, no, it's it's like going to see NASCAR race because you're just going to go to see someone fall and you're not there for the actual, like, sport <laughs> of it. And I was like, I, that makes perfect sense. Okay, sure. Ouch. Well, yeah. I'll take you on a, a mind trip to go see it today. Bone-ruining <laughs> mind trip. Yes. I'm so excited. Yes. And then we have a pledge for this podcast as well, just like in Occult Confessions. So the pledge goes, I solemnly commit myself to keep my hands, arms, feet, and legs inside the vehicle at all times while on this strange ride. And do you think you guys can do it? I solemnly, oh, me, go ahead, yeah. I solemnly oh, yeah. pledge to keep my hands, my hands arms, arms feet, and legs feet and inside bones inside the vehicle at all times, all times <laughs> on this strange ride. That was close enough. I, I like the addition of bones. 
All right, let me set the scene for you. It was summertime in 2002. Sam Raimi's Spider-Man film was just released and it was a huge hit. Everyone was Spider-Man crazy and Marvel wanted to capitalize off this craze. And different people started sending offers to Marvel saying that they wanted to make a Spider-Man Broadway musical and that's what ended up putting the idea into their head. And Michael Parker, who worked in licensing for Marvel, remembered meeting a nice and charismatic producer a while back and decided to give that guy a call, even though he wasn't asking to make one. <laughs> and this man was Tony Adams, and he owned Hello Entertainment, along with his business partner, David Garfinkel. And fun fact, apparently, although they were strictly business partners, they would go to couples therapy, like, all the time together. <laughs> so, I love that. I, yes, apparently Tony Adams was very serious about them going to couples therapy together. And although they had no experience at all producing a Broadway show, they were given the rights to Spider-Man by the end of the summer. Wait, can just anyone so, go to couples therapy? Like, if I was just like, Savannah, let's go to couples therapy, we could just go? It I mean, sounds like it. I mean, if you're paying them money, I think they'll let you do anything is within reason. <laughs> but you just go to couples therapy, like, with your animal, like your dog, you should probably go and be like, they're not listening to me. <laughs> <laughs> could you imagine? Oh, my God. I mean... I don't want to go to couples therapy with you, Rob, but <laughs> I think we're, you and I are doing fine. But I'm just like, it's, it seems like a strange scenario. Like you could say to, you know, your VP or something, your Dean, Hey, uh, I think we need couples therapy. <laughs> well, isn't that what like work retreats are for? It's supposed to like for team building. Yeah. You bring your couples therapist with you while you're there and get all the couples worked <laughs> out on the retreat. That sounds perfect. Go. Will. I'm going to pitch that to the college. <laughs> you and John so... Haas going to couples therapy would be hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> John is the uh, U.S. history professor here. We get along just fine. With the rights to Spider-Man, Hello Entertainment now needed people to, well, write the show. So Adams called Paul McGinnis, who Adams had worked with on a movie once, and McGinnis was the manager of the band U2, which at the time was apparently considered the biggest band in the world. That's uh, subjective. Uh, yeah. yeah, well, but I'm just reporting the facts. You're pretty big. I don't dispute that U2 is enormous. Like they were, didn't when they released one of the iPhones, didn't it like come with U2 music and you couldn't do anything about it? Yeah, and then yes, people well, got people really were mad. Yeah, pissed about that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and this was around the same time, I think. But anyway, yes, I agree they were very large, but I, I don't know if they were the biggest. Well, that's what it said. And what about Dave Grohl? Dave Grohl was fighting Foo at the time. No, <laughs> he was. Um, Come on. But like, wasn't you two bigger in like you know other parts of the world and not so much like? Yeah, they're from Ireland. I don't know if you knew that. Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah. I we did. <laughs> I, I didn't know yeah. that. I read a little bit of, of Bono's book. Oh, you read his new book? A little bit because uh, I will worked at msg for a bit and he was doing a bunch of shows at the beacon so i was like well if i gotta work as a van i should probably know a little bit about him <laughs> yeah yeah i mean sunday bloody sunday it's all about irish uh, the irish revolution all that stuff oh i had no idea actually i don't think i've ever heard a u2 song before listening to this musical uh, i mean but... you probably heard like i uh was it i still haven't found what i'm looking for that's their big one. Oh, i do know that one it, yeah. they were big in uh that's animated movie sing i think bono played like a lion <laughs> <laughs> oh my god the other guys played his lioness harem <laughs> the rest of you too well after chatting with McGinnis, Adams and Garfinkel flew to Dublin to pitch the idea to Bono and Edge, who then excitedly agreed to be the composers for the new musical. And then now they needed somebody to write the show. And where should they look? Oh, well, that was fast. Bono and Edge lived right down the street from acclaimed Irish filmmaker Neil Jordan. And they just walked down the road and knocked on his door and said, want to write our Spider-Man musical? And the answer was another excited yes. And then the next step was now finding a director. And that wasn't very difficult either. Neil Jordan had a friend... A, and a composer named Elliot Goldenthal, and Goldenthal suggested that they get acclaimed director Julie Taymor on board. Goldenthal worked with her closely, and she had just finished directing the Broadway versions of Disney's The Lion King, and that, of course, was more than a huge success. A lot of um, he said, she said in the hiring of, or yeah, the hiring of this musical, which I thought was really interesting. What do you mean, like disputes about how it came together? Like what you just told us? No, no, I'm sorry. No, I just like, I know this person, so they should do it. it, it 
kind of thing. Oh, like, like it's like, like a, both Adams. that old school nepotism that keeps the theater business rolling, right, Will? Yeah, yeah. You're just like, oh, my friend is looking for work, and you know they're they're pretty okay. Why don't you try them out? I'm surprised that I nobody, think... though, when you pitch them, hey, hey, we're gonna do a Spider-Man musical. Like none of these people said, no, wait, really, Spider-Man, like the comic book character. Nobody's saying this. Not really. Okay. Um, I mean, Julie Taymor kind of did, but so he, like, Neil Jordan ended up reaching out to her and she seemed interested, but she didn't want to do a by the numbers work for hire. So she wanted to see if something inspired her and gave her, like, a creative spark. And so she started reading through some Spider Man comics on the first page of the first issue of the Ultimate Spider, Ultimate Spider Man series. She saw what she wanted Norman Osborne, or better known as the man who becomes the Green Goblin, one of Spidey's most recognized villains, recounts the myth of Arachne, and it seems that Julie Taymor became obsessed with her in that moment. And as long as Arachne was in the show, she was going to be part, or Julie Taymor was going to be a part of the show. And then, Rob, would you like to describe the myth of Arachne? Do you know the myth of Arachne? I believe it involves Athena, yes. Yes. And there's a competition about weaving. Arachne's very good at weaving. She's a good yes. tapestry weaver, and so Athena gets jealous, like the gods often do, and she she has a competition with her, and Arachne does super good. She makes a beautiful tapestry, and Athena's like, that tapestry is better than mine, and she turns her into a spider. Well, it's actually, so it, you're sort of correct, but at, it wasn't necessarily that her tapestry was better. Her tapestry mocked the gods. And that's what super pissed off Athena. So hmm. Athena destroys her tapestry and uh, Arachne in her grief over her tapestry being destroyed kills herself. But Athena doesn't let her die. She turns her into a spider. My version is darker. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can see why Julie Tamer would prefer that. I think there's a couple of versions is what I'm trying to say. But um, yeah. But it, okay. So, and to clarify here, Arachne is a story told by a villain in a Spider-Man comic, but is not herself a character in no. any of the Spider-Mans. No, nope. he was okay. just happened to tell the tale of Arachne and then was probably never mentioned again in the comic. And But she was like, ah, Arachne, that's awesome. Let's that's use all the that. permission I need. <laughs> that, that's exactly. Right up, that is like right up Julie Tamor's alley, because I know that like, she's just like, I have no idea what Spider-Man is. February 2003, the creative team met in Dublin and started sharing all of their creative ideas. And in March 2004, Marvel signed off on the creative team and Neil Jordan got to work on a script. Nine months after that, Jordan delivered a 22-page treatment describing the musical to Tony and Julie and was then promptly fired. <laughs> so... <laughs> so. Like, at least they had the sense then to know when something was a really bad idea story-wise. And in Jordan's version of the Spider-Man musical, Norman Osborn would not become the Green Goblin, which is like, why even put Norman Osborn in the show at all if he's not going to become the Green Goblin? And he would be killed and or eaten by Arachne. And this is an actual quote from um, the book I was reading, which I'm assuming is an actual quote from the um, the script uh it says norman osborne flirting with the disguised arachne strokes arachne's shoe remarks on the delicacy of the foot beneath it there are more where that came from she remarks whereupon another foot probes his crotch reducing him to paroxysms of ecstasy more and more legs emerge and twine around him and his song of ecstasy becomes a wail of terror this would have done so well in japan <laughs> <laughs> Probably, but uh, maybe also not in a Spider-Man musical. Well, like, yeah, because I know that Julie Taymor really wanted to sexualize Arachne, and yes, it, that I remember reading about that quote and something about she like wanted Arachne's like libido to be a lot, and then they went to like Marvel, and Marvel found out, and Marvel was just like, 
no, this is this is not what Spider-Man is. Please don't ever try this ever. Well, yes. I mean, when you think about the market for this, it's mostly children. I mean, yeah. not mostly, yes. but come on. There's going to be a lot yeah. of children who want to attend this show. Yeah, like they get to see Spider-Man in person swinging around in real life. Of course, children are going to want to see this show. And that's one of the major problems with it is that Tamor didn't know anything about Spider-Man, really. And she looked down on it. Actually, they all did. Her Bono and Edge too. They were like, "Yeah, this, we don't want this shit to be childish. We want this shit to be dark and cool and creepy." Meanwhile, they're totally forgetting what who the audience is for the show. They were just making it for themselves at that point. Yeah, and also, I I, I know that there's like a lore that the reason why Bono and the Edge signed on to do this was because they like read an interview with Andrew Lloyd Webber saying. Him like gloating about like oh no rock stars have ever taken on Broadway. Did, yep, and and did, they really didn't know. What about how to Elton do it. John? And, can I, can we just take a moment for Elton John? <laughs> well, I think because I, I thought about that and I was like, well, that's a Disney musical, and I was he like, wrote think, Aida too. Oh well, that was also it was produced by Disney. Okay, but I, it I, wasn't it wasn't a cartoon first, I guess. Is what no, I'm trying no, to say. yeah. Because <laughs> well, I was even thinking I was like Phil Collins did Tarzan, but I was like, right? that's, you yeah, know, Phil Disney Collins. movie. But is there a Tarzan I, on Broadway? Did we do Tarzan on Broadway, Will? They, they did do Tarzan on Broadway in like okay. 2007. Go, Phil, go. Yeah. <laughs> the Who Supposedly. wrote the rock opera? Tom, uh, Tommy, the rock opera? That Was that ever done on Broadway? That, yeah, that was, but that was like the 70s, so I think that was before... Oh, pre, pre-Andrew Lloyd Webber. Okay, yeah, before, before the mega musicals took over. <laughs> okay, so they couldn't use... Um, neil jordan's script because it was awful but so in 2005 tamor and adams ended up interviewing glenn berger to be a co-writer for the musical and after having him write an impromptu scene that night and turning it in the next day they they liked it enough that they hired him and the scene was actually um the green goblin is like sitting on a piano on the chrysler building and he's like singing about how he's going to destroy manhattan and then spider-man pushes the piano off the chrysler building and he falls to his death with the piano that's hilarious (laughs) ended up staying in the musical no way (laughs) it did (laughs) yeah it was a co-writer he wasn't going to write the the entire script because julie Taymor decided that she also wanted a hand in writing the script yeah so uh glenn berger and julie Taymor would be co-writers what's your source against savannah for this you mentioned the book do you you know the title yes it is called the song of spider-man and it is written by glenn berger oh so it's sort of like the inside scoop into what happened i will say that um i think the book was amazing like i it was so much fun to read and if you enjoyed this you should definitely go read it because he puts so much more detail into everything however i'm sure some of it is biased because he he doesn't want i'm he does make himself look bad and other people look bad, but I'm sure he doesn't make himself look as bad as he probably could. So, <laughs> with the world may so never know. Take, yeah, exactly. So just take it with a grain of salt. But either way, it's a super interesting story. Julie Taymor and Glenn Berger actually got along really well. And on March 15th, they they met at her like estate or something to make a book or to start writing the book. And by book, I mean the script for the show. I'm sorry, not an actual book, but that another word for script is book <laughs> in case the you don't musical, know anything yeah. about theater. Yeah. Well, in a musical, we don't generally call the, like a, a, t- a play script a book, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right. I'm sorry. It's all good. <laughs> you know, we all know we're all theater people here. <laughs> yes. We're all theater people. They, like obsessively worked on the script together for a couple of days and they said you've got to get obsessive that only fanatics create something of any worth and even when it was time to leave one another they were and they were waiting for their trains at different stations they were yelling ideas to each other from across the train tracks because they were just so excited about what they were making so and it seemed like they were having fun they he glenn berger looks back on this time as like a really nice time period in his life and it wouldn't last unfortunately and so tamer ended up being sold on burger but bono and edge insisted that they wanted to meet him and get their or give their approval because they were a little miffed that their friend that they asked to be part of the show was fired Um, (laughs) their neighbor yeah that's awkward their neighbor tamer garfinkel and adams brought burger to a u2 concert where they were having this meeting backstage right before bono and edge were about to perform in front of a crowd of twenty thousand people 
And uh, and at this meaning, Bono didn't mince words. He grabbed Berger's shoulder and stared straight into his eyes and said, This has to be brilliant. Do you understand me? It has to be. African and- children are starving. <laughs> <laughs> this has to be brilliant. Or, or Andrew Lloyd Webber's going to like say he was right. Yeah, we can't yeah, have no. that. <laughs> no, we cannot have that. After Tamor stuck up for Berger, Bono and Edge signed off on him, and he was officially the new co-writer for Spider-Man. And the two co-writers then got on to writing more of the script, except the progress started to stall because Berger wasn't excited about any of the ideas that Julie was or Julie Tamar was pitching anymore. And I, I keep referring to them by their first names and I'm trying to stop myself from doing that. But in the book that he it's because it's written from his like perspective. It's always like, oh Julie this, Julie that. And it's like it's hard to talk to her talk about her as Tamar because I've known her in this book as Julie for so long. But yeah. I'm trying to be respectful and say just their last <laughs> by their last names Um, proper scholarly approach (laughs) yes i'm trying i don't really know exactly what she was pitching to him that like all of a sudden he wasn't cool about but at one point he ends up saying to her you know julie in a certain light spider-man the musical is kind of a ridiculous idea and she stops and she turns and looks at him and says ridiculous i don't think so no I think, uh, <laughs> yeah. It's like, you kind of, I don't know. It's like she lost all sense of um, introspection. I don't, I guess is the word. Uh, and there have been some, I mean, Will, there have been some ridiculous musicals oh, that have yes. bombed horribly, right? King Kong and Rocky. King Kong, and, uh, Dance of the Vampires. Carrie, Carrie. Yeah, Carrie. <laughs> it was only open for Carrie. like three days. Yeah, only open for yeah. like three days on Broadway and then it closed. I do like Carrie. I like the music. I, I don't know if it's a musical or not, but the music is really good. I mean, there's one there's one uh, starting previews in like two days on Broadway. Uh, Back to the Future, the musical, is coming mm. to Broadway. Um, yeah, I've heard some of the songs. Yeah. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. And the only like cool thing is like the two actors get in the DeLorean and like the DeLorean like flips upside down and everyone's like, whoa. Yeah, it's it's wow. very it's Disneyfied, right? I mean that th- this was part of the Disneyfication of Broadway. I mean yeah. w- Lloyd Webber is also to blame for the Disneyfication. I was about of Broadway, to say but... eventually Glenberger ended up like kind of giving in to Julie and Julie Taymor. They were eventually able to come together and they finished the treatment and they sent the document to Avi Arad, chief creative officer of Marvel Entertainment. And within two weeks of receiving the treatment, he rejected it. So Marvel had that, Marvel was maintaining a lot of control over this. It's their their property. Yeah, their IP, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And they really weren't containing i mean um, maintaining a lot of control over it they were kind of like do what you want but then they show up with this musical about this arachne character wanting to have sex with peter parker because he's spider-man and they're like what the fuck are you doing (laughs) it's it's just kind of crazy and then also it it seems like in uh turn off the dark 1.0 that um arachne is on stage more than spider-man like it it's like arachne is the main character <laughs> yeah. and that's also a really big no-no for marvel because they're like it's a spider-man musical spider-man should be the main character and so they're right about A-Rad, that <laughs> yes exactly and so arad said that um the script was too dark and it wasn't what marvel anticipated at all and that arachne needed to be removed from the script or we're done and Tamor she's half the show she's half the show and they're saying take her out completely yes exactly not even like you can have a little arachne no yeah he's saying she needs to be removed as a treat yeah as a special gift to you you can have one scene with arachne Nope, not that. he. She needed to be removed. And Tamor said, if Arachne's out, then I'm out. Mm. And so Adam spent the last part of the summer mediating heated chats between Tamor and Arad. And even though they didn't get the green light from Marvel on the script, contractually, 
things were still moving forward. On October 20th, Adams had gotten everyone's signature that they needed except for Edge's. And so he went to Edge's Soho apartment. And after having a nice chat with Edge and um, McGinnis, Edge left the room to go grab a pen and a bottle of champagne so that they could celebrate having all the signatures. However, before Edge returned to the room, Adams collapsed. And like right before signing this signature, an ambulance was called. And then two days later, Tony Adams was dead. Whoa. Um, he, yeah, he had, he had had a stroke. Right then and there. Right In then the and there. In Edge's apartment. In Edge's apartment, yep. He did. He went into a coma, so he didn't die right then and there, but it was only two days later that he died. But his last conscious thoughts were of <laughs> signing this document. Yes, they were. He oh probably thought goodness. this... He probably thought this musical is going to kill me, and it did. (laughs) Honestly. It didn't mess around. He he had to spend all that time dealing with Tamor fighting with A-Rad, and then, yeah, just, like, flat out died. And then also it's just, like, this is just the beginning of Spider-Man's bad luck. Like I said, um, a lot of the things were in their control that went wrong with this musical, but Spider-Man really did have some sort of curse on it. Things just went horribly wrong for them for no reason sometimes. And like, such as their main producer dying before the show was even really set to start. After Adam's death, his business partner, David Garfinkel, would become the owner of Hello Entertainment, and he somehow convinced A-Rad to give them another chance with the script and to maybe possibly consider leaving Arachnian. And so uh, I don't know if he if like Garfinkel was just like super persuasive or if A-Rad felt bad because of Adam's recent passing. But by the end of 2005, A-Rad said he'd be willing to see another treatment that had arachne as long as it wasn't as dark. And Tamor Berger got to work and sent him a new treatment by January 2006. However, months go by and they haven't heard anything at all from Marvel. So they've sent him this treatment in January and it's now April and they haven't heard anything. So they don't even know if this musical is happening. They don't know if anybody liked it. They don't know what anybody thought about it at all. And so Garfinkel finally reaches out to ask what happened to it or like what's going on. And they were told that A-Rod was no longer with Marvel. Like he just (laughs) left. (laughs) And the script treatment must have gotten lost in limbo during the transition. So another stroke of bad luck for really no reason unless A-Rad read it and was like fuck this and left (laughs) that was it he quit (laughs) however the new chief creative officer David Maisel said that um, he had just read the treatment and he expressed some concerns about the sexuality in the story and that some other characters seemed to be overshadowing Peter Parker but he did give Hello Entertainment the green light and the musical was happening and Arachne would be in it I'm going to devil's advocate this in a couple directions. I've already made the point about sex, but I'm going to go back on myself just a little bit. Because this is going to be a violent musical, right? We're going to kick a piano off the top of a building. So children can see that. But any sexual desire, no. no, The kids can't see that kind of thing. So well, I, I mean, to be fair, Spider-Man fights bad guys. Like, there's always a little bit of violence, but it's also, like, the scene that I'm describing isn't nearly as dark as I made it sound. Like, it's pretty cartoony. Well, yeah, I mean, I hear that, but it's still, like, a like I wouldn't let my four-year-old see something like that. It's too much. Well, I mean, it's also, you don't see him get hit by the piano. It's sort of just, like, implied, like, he probably fa- he falls off the, <laughs> the stage first, and then, and then yeah. like, he's gone, and then you see, like, a piano fall. It's like, oh no, death happens off stage. Yes. The yeah. Japanese foot tentacle sex. Now, I understand <laughs> that is a step too far, but <laughs> I think a little sex is not the end of the world. I mean, these are 12, 13 year old boys who are going to WWE, which is full yeah. of, you know, sexual yeah. innuendo and stuff, but mm-hmm. albeit with a lot of violence. And I know when I, I worked at, at Frozen, the musical, uh, the like beginning of Act Two in this kids musical, they t- it took place in the like Swedish sauna, and like you had people in like nude, like nude leotards and like towels over them, like and leaves, just like doing kick dances, so it looked like they were naked. And this <laughs> Disney okayed that. So come on, <laughs> we had a lot of a uh, lot of Christian parents like just walking out of Act Two, being just saying like that is I do not want my kids seeing that, and they're like, sorry, like we Disney okayed it, like what do you want us to do? 
it's non-sexual really nudity right it's yeah. it's you're not it's yeah, no sex, it it's not a sexual, sexual situation it's just a song no. yeah, it, a i song. literally just saw it the like like a week or two ago at the hippodrome in baltimore and i was also like i mean i wasn't weirded out because i'm like whatever it's fine and it wasn't sexual but i was kind of like this is a lot of nudity for yeah. a children's show <laughs> and then on top of that too there were a lot of sex jokes in it like anna was constantly trying to like have sex with hans like the the prince character in the show and it was kind of like this is kind of weird <laughs> yeah is that a, but, a male male relationship or uh, Who's I'm Anu? Sorry? I don't know this show. What is Anu? Oh, oh, Anna is the is one of oh, the. Oh, Anna is a lady. Oh, I yeah. get it. I thought you said yeah. Anu. You have a child and you've never seen Frozen. Exactly correct. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> Back to Spider Man. So Tamar and Berger got to work writing the full script, and David Garfinkel, having never produced a play before, let alone a giant Broadway mega musical, brings on Martin McCallum as a line producer. Um, and he was basically brought in to take over Adam's role, which was the more charismatic person, because <laughs> Garfinkel was not that. Let me let me just theater professor you for a second because you used the term mega musical. This mm -hmm. is, I mean, historically, this was invented by our man Andrew Lloyd Webber. Mm -hmm. Didn't exist before that, and the the basic definition, Will, you can weigh in, Savannah, is that a mega musical is a musical which is already expensive and involves large amounts of actors, but with a giant set piece. Mm -hmm. In in Phantom, it's the chandelier crashing, and then it sort of goes from there. But the technical elements have been brought to a a degree or level where they are competing perhaps with the actors and the music mm. for attention. Oh, yes. And Spider-Man does that tenfold. <laughs> I yeah. think. So it is a mega musical. Yeah, they and fly over the audience. Yeah, yeah. And, and historically like, we'll get... in technical theater, just a little bit more theater nerding, the technician, like uh, Adolf Appiah, for example, the lighting designer, the the tech, the way a technician is trained in undergrad is that their work supports the actor. It's not the other way around. But the mega musical created this bizarre scenario where suddenly the technical elements are competing with the actor. Yeah, how can you compete? Yeah. How can you compete with a helicopter crashing on stage? Miss Saigon, yeah. Oh yeah. yeah, and actually, it's really interesting that you put that because. Um, Martin McCallum was actually the producer for Miss Saigon, and he was also the producer for Les Mis as well. Mm -hmm. So, so this guy had some experience, but putting producing a musical is hard enough, and then on top of that, it's a mega musical, and it is like a mega mega musical. Like this musical's tech puts Phantom to shame, which is saying a lot because that musical has a lot of crazy tech in it. Um, yeah, you know, with the chandelier falling on the stage and the giant staircases and all the pyrotechnics and stuff. The it, water. In case you haven't seen the opera, mist. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Garfinkel started making plans on when and where they will be hosting their previews, and they wanted to open up in Chicago first and do previews there, and they wanted to open August 21st, 2008 for those previews. A full draft of the script was finished by the beginning of 2007, and it was finally time to meet with the boys, as Bono and Edge were called, to start fitting songs into the script. Before they go to start working songs into the full script that uh, Tamor and Berger have worked on. They did have a summit a few months earlier with the boys, and that's when they learned that they knew literally nothing about musical theater, and by them being uh, Bono and Edge. So Garfinkel burned them uh, a four-CD compilation of 60 of Broadway's best music from the last 60 years. Just the music? Just music. Well, I mean, like the songs, you know. Like I not think just that's music. a mistake. I mean, Will, I, I think that if you if you hear the soundtrack to Hello Dolly, you still don't <laughs> understand what the heck happens in Hello Dolly. No, because you. Don't... Oh, but it wasn't. So it was basically like one song for every 
year in musical uh, in musical theater for the last 60 years there's no context whatsoever here's a song it was just one song from each musical theater or a show from musical theater in a certain year for the past 60 years so you're right i didn't actually think about that you're right there is no context for songs but sometimes you can still enjoy a musical theater song without the context but But i think that if you're gonna write it yeah go ahead well i was gonna say how do you know how to yeah how to write like story-wise because like the song has to has to fit the story and you know if you're just listening to hello dolly then like i dream a dream and then maybe like a random song from phantom it's just like it's not teaching you how to write the like the song in the context of the story it's just saying oh this is a pretty song like look how like it sounds melodically yeah, I mean, that's the trick. I mean, I, I totally agree, Savannah. Like Cole Porter, for example, back in the day, his songs would, would have radio play and, you know, even Rodgers and Hammerstein, like their music can stand on its own. But the trick, as we'll say, is to make it connect with the story. You can't just have a cool song. I mean, I guess you can now because of Mamma Mia, but you <laughs> historically it has to fit. So I would have made them watch Oklahoma exclamation point and suffer through that. And I would have made them watch West Side Story and South Pacific. And like, they just actually learn what a musical looks like and how it functions. Like give them a that book or true. something. <laughs> right. Yes. Musical theater for dummies. <laughs> yes, honestly, they should have. And I guess like, the thought process was it wasn't just like any random songs like they did like intro songs like power ballads like it was like a variation of what genre of songs are in musical theater and they gave them a wide variation of all of that but you guys are totally right like i'm just playing a little bit of devil's advocate but also garfinkel had never produced a musical before so he didn't probably (laughs) know what he was doing either he he was just an entertainment lawyer he didn't like he knew nothing he just knew like oh yeah like i'll represent this producer when shit goes wrong but you know i've never produced a musical before yep and now he's stuck doing it so bono and edge supposedly (laughs) listened to the cds and when the new summit came around they had dismissed all of the songs they called them mawkish dopey or just pants that's just broadway yep just pants and i I had no idea what that means but that was will do you know what that means that's great just pants (laughs) i don't know what it means but i just i do like that expression i'm gonna start using that (laughs) oh this is (laughs) People think you're very intercontinental. This is just pants. It's an Irish thing, maybe? (laughs) Musical theater songs are dopey. Yes, I was about to say, like, most musical theater is dopey, but people love it for being dopey. And it's also, like, that's what's so frustrating about the making of this musical, is, like, everyone who was working on this musical didn't want to make a Spider-Man musical, but they were doing it anyway. (laughs) They either didn't like Spider-Man or didn't like musicals. (laughs) Exactly! It's like, what is happening? Um, So... So they were having their summit with Berger and Tamor, and um, so some of the songs were coming easy to them, and they had some songs done, but then others were being difficult, and they were very adamant that they wouldn't make anything that sounded cliche, and everything had to be unique, And uh, but with the anthem for the show, they were having trouble not crossing that line, and this is an actual quote from Bono. If I'm going to actually plop something like that onto a fucking page, it better be something that people will sing in football finals in 10 years and make everyone cry. I just mean it has to be a classic in a rising above it type genre, if you follow me. And the song that they were trying to write in the rising above it genre was called Rise Above. (laughs) (laughs) And then Bono says, It better be as good as You'll Never Walk Alone, which is one of the greatest songs ever written. (laughs) which hilariously comes from the musical carousel which is like one of the musicals like and it's also written by rogers and hammerstein who has written like a million different musicals that i'm sure they considered mawkish dopey and just pants but they 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 didn't love one one of the songs it wasn't on the list it wasn't in the cd they and they didn't like it because of carousel they basically didn't know that it came from carousel they liked it because in Ireland, it's a 
anthem that they use in football stadiums. That's wild. Right. I didn't exactly. know Roger Hammerstein was big in Ireland. I know. And, and it's apparently used in like football stadiums. To, How about my boy like... Bill? That's a good one from Carousel too. Or June is busting out all over. <laughs> June is busting out over is like one of the horniest songs ever. Right? Yeah. Yeah, but they said that that's like the best song ever written. You'll never walk alone from Carousel. But yep, they only knew it because of football. Carousel is a tough show, but I agree that the music from Carousel, oh, yeah. I think many regard that as perhaps the greatest work of Rodgers and Hammerstein. The music is like, just from the beginning, the waltz, it's so like, you just put it on. You're just like, ah, I feel something. But then you watch yeah. the show, you're like, oh, <laughs> no, that's that's not good. Like the emotions I, run I, deep. I remember because yeah. because they revived it a couple of years ago, and I remember sitting watching the revival. And at the very end, I had this terrible thought because, like, you know, it ends with his ghost after he's like hit his wife and everything, and he looks at her, he's just like, "I loved you, Julie. I loved you." And I'm just thinking, "Oh, he loved her, even though he hit her." I'm like, "Wait, no, <laughs> I shouldn't be thinking." Oh, he hit her, but he loved her. I'm like, "Well, I mean, it is. Yeah. He's a tragic figure. I mean, we don't need to get into Carousel too much, but he is a tragic yeah, figure because he's." He's incapable of loving a woman, right? My boy Bill, mm. that's a song about how he imagines himself having a boy, but then he had, what if it's a girl? And, and that sort of panic that that sets into him, his incapacity to grasp the female. Anyway, I, uh, it's take. deep, Bono. It's uh, deep. Yeah. Hot take. I hate Rodgers and Hammerstein. So. Even the sound that's of music? It's fine. I mean, it's a classic, and it does have some really good songs in it. But uh, just the, there's, I don't like them. <laughs> but anyway, um, so the creative team was also. Uh, I was kind of saying this earlier. Is um, they were really. It was a bunch of people writing a Spider-Man musical who didn't want to write a Spider-Man musical. And Julie Taymor, Glenn Berger, Bono, and Edge were all on board for making this musical dark. They wanted it to be edgy. They wanted it to be like Spring Awakening and Rent, which like, you know, has sex and cursing all over it, forgetting that they're making a Spider-Man musical. And um, they And actually... bluntly, man, they can't do it. Julie Taymor can't yeah. do it. I think that's the most baffling thing about this. She is the director of the lion king she is not up to this task and bono and edge like come on you want to make a football stadium chant that's not dark and edgy man the reason that anyone at a sports stadium will sing your effing song is because it's not difficult or challenging or dark we don't do that yes. at football stadiums exactly. <laughs> that's a good point i didn't think about that I, what annoyed me about this whole story savannah is the degree to which all of these artists are pop artists and that's what they do for a living is please the masses and yet for mm -hmm. some reason in the midst of this project that is the last thing they want to do they all want to be avant-garde all of a sudden but none of them yes. have the chops or the experience or the ability to ever be avant-garde you made a choice and you can't walk back down that road. Yeah. Sorry. And also, the, the, <laughs> no, it's okay. And like, cause exactly. And also the medium that they chose to be avant-garde in, like right. I'm thinking that their story could have worked maybe if it was some original idea, but they're using Spider-Man, which is like the most <laughs> beloved superhero ever, like loved yeah. by kids and adults for being this happy-go-lucky superhero guy. And that's what they, that's not what they were making. And they didn't want to make that. And that, oh <laughs> it's, yeah. it's pretty infuriating um but so like they were like we can't really put curse words into it because we know marvel will be upset with us but like let and so bono and edge like snuck a a, a shit into the lyrics and <laughs> boys falls from the sky love a nice snuck uh, shit <laughs> but, they're, but they're irish so it, it rhymes with with might <laughs> yes there we go oh shite he gets an irish accent for one line in the songs just Peter to keep Parker. the rhyme scheme <laughs> yep so uh while they left their composers to write the music uh it was time to begin casting the show for a workshop that they would be that was coming up where they would perform for the producers and like all the investors to show how the show was coming along and they reached out to the tesley plus 
company casting agency and they gave that casting agency a description of all of the characters to help them try and find actors that would fit these roles and instead of just like using that to find actors they just sent out the description of all the characters in a mass email to everyone so <laughs> the musical was meant to be sort of under wraps and a secret and now every single person knew that there was a Spider-Man musical. They knew exactly what the characters' arcs were, so they basically knew what the story was. And then everybody knew that Arachne was a character in the musical, which is something that they were hoping to keep a secret until previews. So, like, the cat was out of the bag. The spider was out of the web. And, and that was on April 16th, 2007. This is around the time where, like, internet access was becoming way more accessible. So... Now, every blog about comic books was reporting on the Spider-Man musical and the details of it, and the fanboys came out of the woodwork and started attacking everything about it, which sounds familiar to, like, what happens nowadays, but anyway. Um, was this so... in the proximity? Do you guys know when the gamer stuff happened, the big female gamer controversies? Like, that that was sort of the origin point of the nerd revolutions in pop culture, right? The female what? It was like, um, Will, do you know what I'm talking about? It was the, 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 these f women gamers and you know, um, sort of like a feminist take on video games and, you know, breasts and all that. And Oh, yeah, yeah. From like the, it was like the early 2000s when like yeah. you know, Tomb Raider and stuff, everyone was like going after all like the sexualization of female characters. Elevating right? female game makers. I think it was called Gamergate. And this empowered, it was? it was like the original nerd apocalypse on the internet. And they were doxing people and piling on these, you know, different people about their opinions. Yeah, it was yeah. rough. I mean, that was basically what was happening to the Spider-Man musical. Um, At the and, same time, yeah. right? Roughly the same time period. Probably. Yeah. I, this was Probably. happening in 2007. Yeah, well, so it's a little so. bit after. So the the template has been set during Gamergate to do this exact thing. And, you know, it happened with oh, the Ghostbusters, yeah. the female Ghostbusters. And I mean, in theory, I yes. think that was a little bit ginned well, up. And by to publicity, be fair, but... too, when I was younger playing video games, I was in the trenches fighting this. <laughs> uh, Xbox yeah. Live was not fun to play on when you were a woman. Yeah. Back in the. Well, probably even now but anyway so like on top of their entire show basically being ripped apart on the internet before it was even really fully made the workshop is three months away and they reached out to bono and edge to see how the music was coming along along and they hadn't written anything <laughs> like nothing so they had three months to write every single song for the musical for this workshop which is a lot of songs <laughs> to, to write and they're very busy people going on tours and stuff like that because youtube's the biggest band in the world <laughs> so right um allegedly with one <laughs> rumor oh, has yeah. it so they they managed to with one month until the workshop they managed to pull together a makeshift cast because Julie Taymor was working on a movie called Across the Universe, which is a jukebox musical with Beatles songs. Jukebox movie musical. Yes. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Yes. It's a movie. Um, Basically doing musical. her same puppet thing. She did all that puppet stuff yeah. that she stole from Peter Schumann. <laughs> yeah. I, I remember, I remember loving that movie as a kid, but now like looking back, I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's not, it's just, it's just a love story with Beatles. Yeah, it's okay. It's in her wheelhouse. Yeah. yeah. Gotcha. Well, I mean, people hated it. So, <laughs> like. Yeah, it was not well received, but it was definitely no. just fine. That was a Julie Taymor thing. It looked like a Julie yeah. Taymor thing. They managed to pull, like, the lead actors from that to be Peter Parker and Mary Jane. And on July 16th, they had their first workshop read through for the investors. And it was a very crude version of what the show would be with no set. So all of the actions were spoken aloud by Berger, but by the end of the presentation, they were told by basically everyone in the room that they had a hit on their hands. Um, there were some notes that most of the inve investors had, which included the top of Act 2 needed work and some of the songs needed rethinking. People were happy with what they were seeing in front of them, which didn't change that much from what ended up being put on Broadway that was such a disaster. So I'm wondering, like, how... Did all of these people in this room be like, yeah, this is going to be a hit? Are and you, then, are you wondering how out of touch rich people are? 
Think of, I mean, thanks, Savannah. I think of like Will and I did that catalog, and we, we've only just scratched the surface of musicals that had investors, and those investors put in hundreds of thousands of dollars into King Kong or whatever. Yep. Stardust, what is it? Starlight Express, <laughs> and it got made. Yeah. Well, good point. And they said, you this is me. brilliant. I mean, whoever was in that room when they were making King Kong and Rocky the Musical said, this is genius. <laughs> this is going to change lives. And Rock of ages. Yeah. yeah. And that's what they said Spider-Man was going to do, too. However, Marvel and their chief creative officer had some serious problems with the show. They believed that it was too dark and over-sexualized, and they were afraid that it would adversely hurt their brand, and they wanted it toned down. Tamor urged Marvel to reserve judgment until rehearsals began, and Marvel responded, We have no objection doing so, provided that such discussion occurs sufficiently in advance of the opening for Marvel's concerns to be effectively addressed. I, I mean, I'm going to harp on the set just a little bit longer is there is in the marvel movies i have seen one and a half of them is there little sex they just had their first sex scene like 2021 in uh eternals like was it wasn't it was like a maybe four second scene no nudity just like oh like some groaning and some like gyrating but like that was it that was it so they are very i see but i mean isn't it a little disingenuous maybe i'm wrong but comic books are known for their hypersexualization of men and women oh yeah yes right like there's these... a whole yeah. superman uh comic or something where he's like shacking up with wonder woman and it's like we can't tell anyone it's like you in the justice league they can all see you i mean we yeah. can literally oh, see them they wear tights their breasts yeah. are out their penises yeah. their yeah. bulging muscles right hmm. yep well and that's a really interesting point too because glenn Berger does say that in his book that like he was like look at all these comic books like our musical is perfectly chaste compared to that but there there i guess it was just something about it being in person or like being actual people in on a stage that probably wigged them out I mean, yes you can have you can have sex on stage i've seen it before but, well, I, but not in a musical for children. I'm with yeah. you, though, Savannah. I think that's an effect that we, when I have done shows that involve nudity or, you know, things like this, I get a visceral response from people, even if, you know, it, it doesn't. It, and it, nudity has been done on stage since the 60s. But here I am in you know, 2010, 2015, whatever. If I put a naked person on stage, I will always hear about it afterwards. And I think that that you're right. You're on to something. It's being in the same room with it that makes us mm-hmm. more nervous. Like we think about the porn that's available to everyone right now, but I put a naked person on stage and I'll hear about it. You know what yep. I mean? Yeah, exactly. And I think that was Marvel's thing. And then I think Marvel also was still kind of without being too aggressive, which is kind of strange, but they weren't owned by Disney yet. So <laughs> I guess they weren't as aggressive then. Um, but the deal was like, it, it was about to happen for the Disney it like was, yeah. They were like in the process of it. Yep. I think that they were trying to hint to them that they wanted Arachne less in the show without saying it. And, and maybe I'm just misreading it, but like the only problems that they had with the sexualization, sexualization was Arachne, but that was sort of her only character um, trait was that she wanted to have sex with Peter Parker. And I, Julie Tamor would smite me if she heard me say that. I <laughs> yeah, think. that's not but, a very feminist approach no. to the character, no, is it? but that's the thing is it doesn't... <laughs> It didn't read as feminist to me when I was watching it. It because especially too like in this song that she ends up making, they have all the dancers come out with like all these eight legs, but they're like human legs, and it's like they're like spreading the legs all around and stuff like that. And it just looks like it's it's just like supposed to be like sex, and it, it I don't know. It just and that's like their only thing. And Arachne is all like Peter Parker, you need to either love me or kill me, and it's like. I don't understand where she fits into this musical. Well, didn't like she put uh, like she like requested like she changed the entire Spider-Man origin story for this musical. Like uh, he still gets bitten by like the spider, but it's like Arachne was the one that like sent the spider to bite him. And then like, I think at one point in act one or whatever, she like comes out and she's like, I made you this suit here, like take this suit and wear it. And so it's kind of like she, instead of like 
you know, he made his own suit. He was this. It's so Arachne is the person that's like guiding him, but also wants to fuck him. Yes, exactly. It's weird. <laughs> it's just, it doesn't make any sense. Hashtag but... Spider-Man 2. <laughs> yep. And so, um, She's grooming him in a way. She is grooming him. She's taking advantage of her position as mentor. (laughs) Yes. It's fucked up. (laughs) It's a fucking weird musical. And like, I was, I must have given into the politics or the biases of this book because i was like oh you know what they were trying to make art like it and it sucks that like they thought it was going to work and it didn't and then i watch like i found like a bootleg version of 1.0 and i was furious after watching it i'm like this is the shit that they were arguing over (laughs) (laughs) this shit sucked it was so bad well also also the uh for like the title of it i remember reading i don't know if it's 100 percent true but like there's a lore that says when they're coming up with the title uh bono was just like my daughter sometimes when i go to like tuck her in at night she'll say uh turn off the dark and they're like that's perfect for the title for this musical and they're like what (laughs) yeah but oh but this is a deep avant-garde show not for children but we're still gonna market it to children and And take the title from an actual child (laughs) yeah Yeah. and take the title from an actual child and but continuing on with how this show got made um they started bringing on other creatives uh like that you need to make a musical such as the set designer who would uh who was george siphon uh with rod bissinger as his assistant assistant designer and siphon brought a concept of making the set look like a comic book coming to life everything was painted with the bold black lines and had that classic style that you see in comic books but the set pieces would move and point in all different directions helping the set not look so flat and i will say having watched both versions and by both versions uh spoiler alert there is a 1.0 version of spider uh, of spider-man turn off the dark and there is a 2.0 version um where they close down the show for a little bit and totally revamped it and that's what i mean by 1.0 and 2.0 the set was honestly pretty cool the way that it would move and one of the coolest effects that they had was that they had a chrysler building that would fold out towards the audience so that the point of the chrysler building was like pointing out towards the audience and then the screens on the back projected the road so it looked like you were up above the chrysler building looking down at the road and like the streets of new york city and that's where spider-man and green goblin had their fight and it made it appear as if they were fighting in the air high above the city and that effect works it looks super cool so like if you want to watch just that the Spider-Man Green Goblin fight scene just to see that effect. It's pretty cool looking. Other creatives that you need to make a musical were also hired, such as Dan- Daniel Ezrolo. Daniel Ezrolo as the choreographer. Uh, Iko Ishioka as the costume designer. And Donald Holder as the lighting designer. And then the next creative that they needed is one that most musicals don't need, but Spider-Man definitely needed, was an aerial stunt designer, and that man was Scott Rogers. And Tamor and Berger flew to L.A. to see what he had come up with, and Scott Rogers really was the perfect person for this role because he designed all the aerial stunts for Spider-Man and Spider-Man 2, the the Sam Raimi films. So it it was, like, perfect for this. And he took a relatively new technology that was being used uh, to help film pro football, like that camera that... That really tiny camera, like on four strings, that flies around and tracks the ball above the field. Oh yeah. Like, have you guys seen that? Yeah. yeah that it's like he a, it's took like a that drone. thing. Sort of, except it is attached to cables, um, and it has like a ton of maneuverability and stuff because it's so small. He took like that thing and strapped it to the back of an actor portraying the Green Goblin, and that was how they made the Green Goblin fly. Now, for hardcore Spider-Man fans, you remember that the Green Goblin doesn't actually fly himself. He has an air glider that makes him fly. Well, they didn't know tech-wise how they would be able to do that and make it look like he was flying on an object. Marvel gave them the permission to change the lore a little bit and gave the Green Goblin wings. 
So that's how the green goblin's flying around. So they didn't know how to make it look like he can't you just strap a little surfboard to his feet? (laughs) Uh, A boogie board, if you will. Bring it up with Scott Rogers. I don't know. Doesn't that <laughs> like, like who? Right? Like from an audience standpoint, a man yeah. with a boogie board strapped to his feet in the air is flying on that boogie board. Well, I guess they didn't. They yep. didn't want to. I guess have the boogie board fall off and like then it'd be like, oh no, how's he flying still? But <laughs> also, like they were going to be flying over the audience, so if it fell off, it could hit an audience member. Fuse it, or something. Fuse it to his costume. Well, no. Rob, you should go back and direct Spider-Man the Musical. I'm go too avant-garde for it. this BS. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, well, so the goblin is being suspended in the air by his back while flying over the audience's head, staring down at them. So it's kind of like somebody snorkeling, like how they're like kind of flat on their stomach. And so looking up, you would probably see what fish see when people are snorkeling. <laughs> green goblins flying over um so he like made a pass over the audience and then a stuntman portraying spider-man flew into the space and after them fighting in the air like suspended a bit they had spider-man do the thing that was going to blow everybody out of the water and was going to put turn off the dark's name out there and it was that he the spider-man actor did a backflip over top of the green goblin while jumping in between the Green Goblin's cables. And this is really impressive because, I mean, like, this is a really dangerous move. Like, wires could get tangled up, and, like, it just looks like they were out there not not attached to the strings. Like, they were just able to fight and move around however they wanted to. So that was, like, the big seller. And um, everybody was super impressed and super excited to start working on this thing. And, And then is like well i'm not sure if i can actually recreate that exactly in the theater or at all but like because he's a movie guy in the movies you only have to pull it off once and there's cgi exactly and you can use like dummies and and not stunt performance yep but everybody was so happy with them they were like oh whatever you put there will be fine Okay, go for it. That was pretty much it. Um, So things seemed to be falling into place, and the producers were ready to start looking for a theater to perform this beast in. Then set when rehearsals wanted to start. May 2009, which was 16 months away at that point. Garfinkel wanted to turn off the dark to have the 12-week run in Chicago as an extra preview period, which is something that a lot of Broadway shows do. However, learning about how much they would have to renovate the theater to house the technology for this musical. And then for 12 weeks, they would, they would have to assemble it. And then after 12 weeks, disassemble it and then reassemble it in New York. They were like, okay, no, 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 that's not going to happen. Like that's way too expensive. So they ended up um, canceling the Chicago thing at all. And they started looking for a theater in New York. They ended up finding the Hilton Theater, which was housing Young Frankenstein, but Young Frankenstein didn't do so well, and it was closing, so they snatched it up. And uh, finally, Spider-Man officially had a house to live in, a theater to live in. And Tamor was pissed off about this because she was like, I didn't want my show to actually be on Broadway. She... And then she started to insist that, like, everybody stop calling it a musical and to start to start calling the show a circus rock and roll drama. (laughs) (laughs) She's she's afraid, man. Yeah. She's afraid at this point. I think she's terrified of what she's created and that it's not going to land with a Broadway audience. Why else would you say such a crazy thing? That's true. She's afraid that it's not going to be identified. Right. That's a good point. I mean, but things were looking up for them at the moment. But yeah, I guess she knows in her sub, she... in her heart of hearts, she knows this is not Broadway and this is not a musical. <laughs> yep. So suddenly with a theater book and plans to start building this monster of a show happening, Martin McCallum and the other producer told Tamor that uh, they had to start making cuts to the sets and other things because the budget was swelling beyond reason. Because <laughs> they had to like, do they, they had to to like redesign the whole theater basically and get permits because of like everything is historic in that building. And they had to 
uh, like take out the ceiling and you know put it in a warehouse for like two weeks while they installed all the, the, the rigging and wires. Yeah having to renovate the whole theater in itself is like a huge deal but then on top of that all of the all of the technology that they had to use for the show to make the show work was so expensive and it was too expensive to buy so they had to rent it which was also still stupid expensive so every week they're renting this technology these this like fly technology and then on top of that they needed extra crew to man this thing so that the budget was just going crazy because of the nest like everything that they needed to even make this musical work and i just think it's crazy that they were like yeah well instead of buying it we'll just rent it but i can't imagine renting it was that much cheaper i i don't know I, there's just a, it's you know it's interesting just a lot of silly decisions i think <laughs> So we finally covered all the complications it took to even get this musical made, and it took me a bit longer than I had anticipated to tell this story, so I'll end this episode here. In the next episode, we will get into Turn Off the Dark's plot, their long and tedious rehearsals, and of course, the reason anyone knows about this musical, the injuries. Today's voice actors included Brandon Walls as Bono, Neil Sigmund as Glenn Berger, and Brianna Litterall as Julie Taymor. My sources include The Song of Spider-Man by Glenn Berger and the Turn Off the Dark Archives YouTube channel where I was able to watch videos from both versions of the musical. Thank you so much for riding along with us. Please remain seated. Your strange ride will begin again momentarily. Well... There is a funny, this has nothing to do with Spider-Man, but I was reading in a book uh, by Michael Riddell called Razzle Dazzle, like the 19, I think it was like 1988 or whatever. They were looking at the New Amsterdam Theater to put Phantom in and New Amsterdam Theater had been secluded for so many years since like the 1940s. It was all like Times Square was still sex shops and pornos. And they like went inside the New Amsterdam, they went inside New Amsterdam, New Amsterdam Theater and looked around at like the decay and everything. And Hal Prince and Andrew Lloyd Webber said, there is no way in hell this, this theater will ever like hold a like family friendly musical in it ever. And then Disney bought it like four years later. Oh. And that's where uh, Lion King and Aladdin, Aladdin's still playing there now. But I just think that's like just so funny that Angeloid Weber was just like, no, no way in hell there's ever going to be a, a family friendly musical in this theater ever. And then it's just like, actually, it's going to be the biggest family friendly musical theater ever. <laughs> It's also Thanks, that, Uncle like, Walt. Andrew Lloyd Webber isn't exactly always correct as well. Yeah, of course. <laughs> he made Bad Cinderella. Of course. Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. That could be another story one day.